0: I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Beverly Daniel Tatum, the author of Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race. This book is a national bestseller. It's a classic now in its 20th anniversary edition, just released a few years ago, completely revised and updated for modern times. Beverly is one of the foremost authorities on race in our country today. She is the President Emerita of Spelman College and has been awarded the Award for Outstanding lifetime contribution to psychology, which is the highest honor presented by the American Psychological Association. We're excited to speak with Beverly today about race in our country and beyond, about her experience running Spelman College, one of the historically black universities in our country here, and about what's changed in the last 20 years since the first publication of her book and where she thinks the conversation about race is today. What can parents today do with our teenagers, with our kids, with our families to be having the right conversations about race? Dr. Tatum, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. So this is something that you've been doing for a really long time. How did all of this start and how did you get interested in this and get into this?
1: Sure. Well, I'm a psychologist by training. And while I was still a graduate student back in the late 70s, I had the opportunity in 1980 to teach a course called Group Exploration of Racism. I was just doing it, not because that was my career goal. But, you know, I was working on my dissertation and someone asked me if I had capacity to do this class and I needed a little extra money. And so I said, sure, I'll do it, <laughs> <laughs> it was as simple as that. But yep. when I uh, had that teaching experience, when I taught it the very first time, what really impressed me at the time I was teaching at the University of California in Santa Barbara. And what impressed me was my students response to the class, which was wow, I learned so much. Why didn't we talk about these issues when I was in high school? Why did I have to wait till I was, uh, you know, college senior to, to understand how racism works in our society? So I got such great feedback, actually, from my students, most of whom were white, that I thought, well, I'll do it again. And I ended up doing it over and over and over again, teaching the course many times, so much so that I shifted my career focus from becoming a therapist, working as a therapist, and becoming a college professor, teaching about the psychology of racism. So I'd been doing that, you know, when the book, when my book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race was first published, was 1997, so by that time, I'd been teaching this course about 16 or 17 years and had learned quite a lot about the questions that people have. Right. About racism and how it operates in our society, not only why are the black kids sitting together, but also how do you talk to young children and also, you know, what can I do to make a difference? And so I organized the book back then to have really three parts. I call it what, so what and now what. What is racism? How does it operate? How do we understand the systemic nature of it? So what? does that matter in terms of how we think about ourselves as individuals and members of racial groups and how we think about other people? And now what, now what can we do about it? So I wrote that book in 1997 and it turned out to be a very popular book. People found it helpful, which was great. But fast forward to 2017, 20 years later, Meanwhile, I, you know, gone on to be a college professor and then an administrator, and eventually the president of Spelman College. And I retired from being president in 2015. And I thought, well, now that I have some free time, maybe <laughs> I will update this book. I will update the book because, you know, having worked in higher education all those years, I realized that the people who were born in 1997 and 20 years old in 2017 had had a very different life experience than the students I had been teaching back in 1980. Mm. And so I wanted the book to really reflect the experiences of a 21st century population.
0: What did you see as the main thing that needed to be updated? Like, we were going to keep those same three kind of pieces to the book and just update the examples? Or did you see like a fundamental shift take place that needed to be addressed, do you think, in the new version?
1: Well, there were four things. I like to say there were four things that were really significantly different and are reflected in the book. And, the, and I call them the four Ps okay. because they all begin with P. The first P has to do with population. The population in the United States has changed significantly since I was working on it at first. Much more diverse today than it was even in the late 90s. And so I wanted the content to reflect the changing nature of our demographics. That was one thing. So changing population. To just say a word about that for your audience, you know, I like to say I'm not that old, but I was born in 1954. In 1954, the US population was 90% white. 10% everybody else. And so that is often a surprise to people, you know, because we live in a society today where we're like 60% white or 65% white and two thirds, you know, two thirds white and everybody else. And that's a big shift because when we say 90% white, it wasn't 10% black people. It was 10% blacks, Latinos, everybody everybody else, everybody else, everybody (laughs) else. So that is a big shift yeah. if we think about what the population is today in 2020. And so that was one P. The second P was politics. When I wrote my book in, 19, in the late 90s, when it was published in 1997, Bill Clinton was the president of the United States. Uh, yeah. um, he, in his presidency in the same year, 1997, launched what he called the President's Initiative on Race. And he said in a speech that he thought it was very important for the United States, the population of the U.S., for all of us to talk about the legacy of racism in our society. And in 1997, he said, I think this is a good time to have that conversation because we are not at war and the economy is good. We're at peace and feeling prosperous. And when things are good, that's when you can really take on tough conversations. He made that speech in nineteen ninety-seven. That commission worked for about a year, but many people didn't hear about the work of the commission because it was overshadowed by, you know, his impeachment trial uh, and the scandal of Monica Lewinsky. But, yeah, right. but if we go to the next president, uh, you know, in two thousand, George W. Bush was elected, and he, in his first year, in the fall of two thousand one, September eleventh, two thousand one. We were attacked, and all of a sudden, we weren't a nation at peace. And during his tenure, too, the 2008 collapse of the economy meant we weren't experiencing prosperity either, and that had an impact on the kind of conversations people might have been willing to have. Then in 2008, Barack Obama was elected, first African-American president, of course, and when he was elected, many people said, we don't need to talk about it. It's fixed.
0: Right? Ah, okay, great. <laughs> Solve that issue. Woo! Exactly.
1: Of course, we know that uh, that was a premature conclusion, of, uh, and in fact, there were a lot of incidents that occurred during his leadership over that eight years. You know, the Charleston shooting and the church, the um, rise of white supremacist activity, really started in response. To his election. And then 2016, Donald Trump was elected. And we know from his campaign that um, racial divisiveness was part of his rhetoric from the very beginning when he started talking about Mexicans and you know castigating populations of all kinds. And so since his election, we've seen, as documented by the Southern Poverty Law Center and other organizations, a real rise in racial harassment and hate crimes. And of course we know right at this moment that we are talking, there are protests all over the nation taking place in response to the police violence and murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. So just the shift in political leadership was something that I wanted to reflect on and the impact that it had. And then the third P was polarization. I think most people would agree that we are living in a time when there's more sense of polarization between and among us than in previous years for sure. And then the last P is psychology. And that is to say that there are psychological researchers who study the things that I write about, who have um, published important articles and introduced us to important ideas, that weren't being talked about in 1997, but that I wanted to be sure to include in 2017.
0: Something that I found really interesting in this book was this idea that when a trait represents a person being a member of a dominant or advantaged social group, it kind of becomes invisible to us, or we fail to notice it sometimes. And so you talk about in this book how part of what you do with students, I guess, is ask them to complete the sentence, I am blank. What do their responses reveal about the way that they view themselves and their racial identity?
1: Sure. So let me just start by saying that we all have multiple dimensions of our identity. And if you ask someone to describe themselves quickly, you know, just the first 10 things you think of to say about yourself, you're going to say all kinds of things. You might say, I'm tall, I'm short, I'm intelligent, I'm happy, I'm 18. You know, it could be any number of things that you would say about yourself. But what we think of first tends to be those characteristics that are most salient to us. Maybe they're the things that people most often comment about or notice about us. And so if you ask a diverse group of young people to fill in the blank, I am fill in the blank, give them 60 seconds to do it, write as many different adjectives or descriptors as you can. What's really interesting is that those people who have a dimension of their identity that makes them stand out in some way will usually mention it. For example... If it's a predominantly white group of students, but some of the students are kids of color, the kids of color are probably going to mention their race or ethnicity. But the white students usually don't mention whiteness. They don't mention being white. If someone is in a group of Christians, but is a Muslim or a Jew, that Jewish person or that Muslim person is going to likely mention their religious identity, but mainline Protestants may not even mention it. I noticed in my classes when I was teaching in co-ed institutions, I worked for many years in women's colleges, but when I taught in a co-ed institution, you know, the women would often mention being female, but the men didn't always mention their male identity. The dominant identity, the identity that gives you social status or privilege in our society tends to go unnoticed. Here's an example that your audience might identify with. You know, I can describe myself in a lot of different ways. I probably wouldn't mention being able-bodied. You know, I don't have any physical concerns, but if I were in a wheelchair, I probably would mention, mm-hmm. you know, wheelchair-bound as an example. You know, I don't mention myself as a, you know, a breather of oxygen, <laughs> you know, but if I if I for some reason couldn't breathe my oxygen, I you can bet I'd be talking about it.
0: Yeah, right.
1: So the idea that that part of our identity that goes unmentioned, unnoticed, uncommented on by other people is likely to be unmentioned, unnoticed, uncommented on by us as well. We're not thinking a lot about it.
0: And it makes sense too, because you know, whole point of our identity is that it's what identifies us or makes us, you know, unique in some way. So we just focus in on kind of those aspects of ourselves that we feel like separate us out or something or like well it's, look it's different in others eyes
1: what, what's important about that though is that it's not just what we think it's the feedback we've gotten from other people
0: right
1: so I sometimes use the example of one of my sons who is very tall He was a tall baby and you know tall toddler and now is like <laughs> a six4 adult and if you had talked to him when he was seven, and you asked him, I would overhear conversations like this all the time. Somebody would say, how old are you? He'd say, I'm seven. And then they would get ready to say, oh, you're tall for your age. Oh,
0: wow, you are a tall kid. Yeah. Right,
1: exactly. And people would say it so much that he would say, I know, don't say it. I'm yeah, tall you.
0: Yeah, 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 right. I know.
1: You know, so it's the feedback that people are giving you. You know, our identities are formed not Sitting in a room alone, but in dialogue with other people, in interactions with other people. And the feedback they give us helps to shape how we think about ourselves.
0: It only takes really a few people saying that probably. I mean, really, you we pick up on stuff like that really, really fast, you know. Yeah. That's social feedback that, yeah, we use to then inform our own identity. But also, I thought what was so interesting about that story, because I also marked that one with David, was just the idea of that, the change. And the fact that when he's seven, people are mentioning his height his race isn't really even factored in or whatever to their first impression of him. But then once he reaches adolescence, then I guess it suddenly is. To me, that was a theme of the book or an insight from this book is that shift that happens. And so I guess, why is that or where does that come from or what's going on? Well,
1: two things happen. One one of the things is that teenagers are changing how they think because their brains are developing. Sure. I mean, that's just, you know, a neurological reality. You know, when we're born, our brains are still developing and they get to their sort of adult state in our teenage years. And as the brain develops, you are able to think more abstractly. So questions like, who am I? What does this mean? How am I viewed in the world? Those are questions that uh, teenagers, adolescents are thinking about in part because their brain is allowing them to think in those ways. But the other part of it is that the social signals are different, right? So the social signal you get when you're a cute black kid at the age of seven is different than the social signal you get when you're a tall 17 year old and people are perceiving you as perhaps dangerous or a threat because they're viewing you through the lens of stereotypes.
0: Yeah. Coming back to the question, the eponymous question of the book, why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? So is that part of the answer then?
1: That is part of the answer. That is part of the answer because, of course, nobody asks that question in a segregated school. Right. So if you're at a school where all the kids are black, no one's asking, why are they sitting together? But so this is a question that gets asked in racially mixed settings. And in those racially mixed settings, as kids enter adolescence, they are starting to have experiences or encounters with racism in the environment. They're starting to get feedback, Yeah. maybe from teachers, maybe from peers, maybe from the you know, school resource officer, the police officer in the building, you know, as they're getting that feedback, they're becoming increasingly aware that their racial group membership matters to other people. And they're starting to think about, how does it matter to me? How do I feel about it? How do I think about it? And as they're doing that, it's a natural thing to wanna connect with other kids who are asking the same questions, thinking about the same things with whom you have that in common. Even if the school is a place where there's not hostility. And of course, if there is hostility, you can see how people would band together as a self-protective element. But even in a school where that's not the case, the kids of color are gonna be having different experiences. The experience of watching or seeing on the internet the video of George Floyd's murder it's going to hit you differently if you can imagine yourself as george floyd as opposed to someone who just feels bad about the mistreatment of another person
0: so you think that kind of thing is really important to reflect on with people of your own race as well as in situations with mixed race
1: well i certainly think dialogue across groups is important yeah but sometimes there are times when you want to talk to someone who really understands what your experience is yeah. and you don't
0: have to explain it. Yeah, start from square one and like explain the entire thing to them. They just like know and you just can empathize and they get it. On page 158, you're talking about a program in school, it was a voluntary desegregation program that led to actually improved academic performance and social relationships among students by actually separating the Black students for one period every day, which seems at first to kind of not make sense, like how would actually separating the students, you know, make it better? But I guess uh, that kind of comes back to what you were just talking about.
1: Yeah. So in this particular program, this took place in the greater Boston area, and there were kids who lived in the city of Boston who were being bused into a suburban majority white community. And of course, the purpose was a voluntary program. Their parents put them on that bus to go to that school because they thought they would have access to a high quality education. But there were also social stresses associated with being in an environment, in a community where you don't live, but uh, where people might be perceiving you through a stereotype lens, where you're still dealing with the realities of racism in the world as a young teen of color and being able to talk to other kids with the support of concerned and caring adults because they you know the kids weren't just off by themselves they were in conversation with advisors who were able to help support them that it was a stress reducer you might say and by having that time to just be able to talk candidly without worrying about, you know, what other people were perceiving or thinking kind of freed up their cognitive capacity to be able to focus in a better way on their schoolwork the rest of the day.
0: But isn't it better to just kind of not talk about race? and just kind of, you know, just assume everybody kind of knows what's going on and just not really focus on it?
1: Well, the trouble with not talking about it is when you've got a problem, and we do have a problem, if you have a problem and can't talk about it, you can't fix it. So we all have to be better at being able to have these conversations so we can really work toward real change.
0: You talk about a father in here, and there's this uh, little scenario where He's telling you about when he picked his daughter up from school and asked her to point out her new friend. And she's trying to point out, you know, her new friend from this group of girls on the playground. And it's like the one black girl in the group. But she doesn't mention anything about, you know, race. She's talking about what the girl's wearing and kind of like the backpack that she has and all these like other kind of like things. And the dad is, you know, telling you about this. And he's really proud, you know, because he that his daughter is colorblind. Then you say, I wondered if rather than a sign of colorblindness, it was a sign that she had learned not to be so impolite as to mention someone's race. And um, yeah,
1: the, the idea, a lot of uh, particularly white families have this idea that their children should be colorblind. And I think what they really mean is that they don't want their kids to be racist or they don't want their kids to be discriminatory. And of course I want that too. <laughs> I mean, you right, know, yeah. but to say you don't see somebody else's racial group membership or you don't see their identity is to erase a significant part of their experience so you know the daughter who might have been thinking it was impolite to say oh it was the black girl is perhaps internalizing an idea that there's something wrong with being the black girl
0: yeah you know yeah.
1: and that that message that you know it's so unpleasant that we shouldn't even mention it is problematic you know she should say oh look up you know i've got you know Susie, the black girl, um, is the easiest way to point out if she's the only one, right? That's the right. That's the, fat, that's the quickest identifier. But also, you know, it's just, it's like saying the one with the red hair, you know?
0: Yeah, right.
1: It doesn't have to be a loaded thing or it's not. And it's certainly it's not a really
0: identified. obvious physical distinguishing characteristic. Right. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't have to be so loaded. But it also, just like that attitude, it strikes me that, just like picturing because you kind of paint this little scenario and you can kind of picture the scene of like the girl describing it to the dad and just like subtly, you know, he was proud of her for not mentioning it. And so she was then in that moment, like kind of rewarded with like his pride um, yes. and like just reinforced for that behavior of like not talking about it. You know, Definitely. I thought it was really interesting reading it because it was just like one of those subtle ways in which this culture of silence is just perpetuated you know and it's like taught from a parent to child without trying at all because he was he was thinking he was doing the right thing kind of or helping so this is an interesting idea that we've heard from A couple other people on this podcast i'm getting really interested in this just the education system and how there's such a lack of models of anything in education of what we teach kids other than like white men and so you know we had talked about this book on the podcast recently with janice kaplan called the genius of women that was like all about how there's just this dearth of role models of like Really, really smart women. And, uh, you were talking here a lot about how just this dearth of like African American History um, and literature at the high school level, and how a lot of black students get to college and they're like, wow, all this exists. And so, I guess, you know, I wonder what parents can do or what we should be thinking about in terms of how we can just be like raising more literate, um, you know, and culturally uh, intelligent um, teenagers.
1: Well, certainly, parents can speak up about it at their child's school. You know, they can ask questions about the curriculum, they can say, You know, I am looking at what my kid's bringing home and I'm not seeing a diverse representation. There's a story, a true story, about um, a recent social studies book published and widely distributed across, you know, the country. It was being used in Texas, but Texas book orders often influence because it's such a big state, you know, what is being used in other states as well. And in this particular textbook, they had a unit on immigration and they referenced slavery as an example of immigration, which, um, you know, the Africans were immigrant labor, right? Um, Not quite. And so there was a young man in this class using this textbook, took a screenshot of this particular passage, sent it to his mother, and she was, you know, beside herself with the inaccuracy of how how this was being communicated. And, you know, really took it socially viral on social media. And, you know, eventually the um, textbook publisher had to acknowledge the editorial error and issue, you know, a correction in the online version of the textbook. But that's an example of parents paying attention and then, you know, speaking up about it. So certainly we can educate ourselves and then ask our schools to be responsive in that way.
0: That's cool. And just inspiring, I guess, that, you know, you have power and you don't have to, you know, just say this is the way it is. What is wise criticism and why was it important in a study that you mentioned in the book? And yes. what could we learn about it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So this grows out of the research of a social psychologist whose name is Claude Steele. And Claude Steele was the first social psychologist to write about something he refers to as stereotype threat. Stereotype threat is the idea that if you know there are stereotypes about your group, you may want to behave in ways that will work to, you know, you don't want to fulfill the stereotype. So in this particular case, his work was about the stereotypes about Black students being less capable academically. And let's imagine you are a Black student at a predominantly white college or university or high school. It doesn't have to be college age. But in this particular case, it was a study done at a college. Um, And you are worried that people have these stereotypes about you and people like you. I want to talk about the concept of stereotype threat, and then I'm going to answer your question about this particular study, the wise criticism. But Claude Steele did this work where, you know, what he found was that when students are worried that other people are going to perceive their capabilities as less than, they might get nervous, you know, and in some ways, the, the stereotype threat is the anxiety, the performance anxiety that you can have when you're trying to do your best, but you are concerned that people are not going to see it or recognize your talent.
0: Yeah. You like view yourself as an ambassador of your entire race almost. Yes. Or like there's even studies on like women as well in different disciplines, like when any characteristic is made salient that has some stereotype behind it, we then try to like prove that like, you know, uh, we're, we're not, no, we're, we're really, uh, we can do it just yeah. as good as, you know, the other people can. And, yeah.
1: and, and, and one of the things that happens is sometimes in your effort to prove it, you try too hard and you make mistakes because you're anxious and nervous and it, it inhibits your performance. Yeah. So one of the things that knowing about this research some researchers decided to try to figure out how to reduce stereotype threat. You know, if you okay. could lower the anxiety, you would see um, a different level of performance. So they created a test uh, an ex- as an experiment where they asked a group of students, white students and black students at Stanford, which is obviously, you know, a very elite institution and nobody goes to Stanford unless they're really a good student. So you've got this group of talented students, white students and black students at Stanford, and they're all asked to write an essay. And the essay was supposed to be about a favorite professor. And they were told that the essay was going to be perhaps published in a um, publication celebrating you know, the excellent professors. And so it needed to be really a well-written essay. So it's clear that, you know, we have a high standard. It's going to have to be really good to be accepted. Um, But everybody wrote their essays. And then they turned their essays into the professor. And they were turned in with a photograph. And the reason they had to turn in the photograph was to let the writer know that the professor was going to know their race or ethnicity, right? Yeah. So they they turn in their essays. And the raters, the people who are grading the essays, write comments and everybody gets criticized. You know, here's your essay, it's not good enough, here's what you need to fix. And then what they wanted to see was how many of the students would revise and resubmit their essay. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Well, they found that more white students revised and resubmitted the essay than the black students did in this typical criticism version. The same experiment was done, except in this case, the criticism was not. Here's what's wrong with your essay. The criticism came in a form which we might call I call it a criticism sandwich or a buffered criticism. And what I mean yeah. by that is you say something nice at the beginning. I, you know, I really like the opening of your essay. Here's what's wrong with it. And now he, let me say something nice at the end. So the criticism oh, is sort yeah. of inserted in the middle, right? Buffered. Yeah. And in the buffered criticism version, more white students revised and resubmitted the essay than the black students did. But in this case, more black students revised and resubmitted than in the first version. Okay. But in the last version, the wise criticism version, the feedback came in a particular way. And it started by the person giving the feedback saying, I want to remind you that these essays need to be really good because they're being considered for publication. So I am reminding you that there's a high standard. And now I'm saying, but I believe you can meet that standard. Therefore, I'm going to give you very detailed criticism about your essay. And I hope Mm -hmm. you'll put that criticism to use and, you know, resubmit because I think your essay has potential. So when the feedback came in that way, more Black students revised and resubmitted the essay than even the white students did. And, um, and what was important about that was in the earlier version, the student might think, oh, he's just criticizing my essay because he's biased against me. You know, um, I'd, maybe yeah. you don't trust the source of the criticism. Mm. But in the last version, when the professor says, I have a high standard, but I believe you can meet it. And I'm giving you all this criticism because I want you to be able to meet my high standard. Then it sounds like not you're picking on me, but you're investing in me. You're investing your time and effort to make sure that I am doing my best. And that is like, whoa, somebody's really appreciating me. Let me try harder for that person. That's wise criticism.
0: I just think that's so impactful. And I mean, I could see that working for just about anything, that exact little format of reminding people that it's, you know, this is, this is not easy what you're, what you're trying to do here. And, you know, I wouldn't be taking the time to give you this feedback if I just thought there was no chance, you know, I'm doing this. I'm going to tell you this because I really think you got something and, you know, you got a shot. And because of that, I'm going to really take some time here and give you some really quality feedback, you know? I mean, I don't know. I, I just thought that was such a cool tidbit. And I think if someone told me that, I would listen and I would probably take their feedback. So yeah, I, uh, that the wise, wise criticism is, I think, something to learn.
1: What it really says, you know, if we were just going to summarize it quickly, the key messages are this is important. You can do it. I'm not giving up on you. You know, that that is the, you know, that's the key message that really encourages students, particularly those students who don't get those messages very often, to really lean in and give it their best effort. And it's a message that any educator could give. But sometimes, you know, they don't realize how important it is, particularly for students who are marginalized.
0: I think there's just something about a good mentor that says, I, I see something in you and, you know, I think you really got something that really just makes us want to prove ourselves and live up to their, you know, Dale Carnegie in his like most classic book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. One of his core principles is give people a good reputation to live up to, you know, expect positive things from people and you'll get it. And I think that's a really good example of that, you know, of of reaffirming that this isn't easy, but, you know, I think you can do it. So why is it that Black graduates of historically Black colleges seem to do so much better on a whole lot of different measures than those who graduate from predominantly White institutions?
1: Well, I think it has a lot to do with what we're just talking about. If you are a student of African descent, you don't have to be to go to an HBCU. But particularly if you are and you go to um, a historically Black college, one of the things you know is that institution was created with you specifically in mind. You know, when I was president of Spelman College, I used to say to the Spelman applicants, people who are thinking about coming to Spelman, that if you want to be at an institution where you're going to be at the center of the educational experience, not on the margin of it in any way, Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, young Black women are the main purpose for this institution, this is the place you want to be. And when you have that experience, when you come there, one of the things you realize is that all of those women who came before you, who are now doctors and lawyers and running for governor in Georgia, mm. Stacey Abrams is a spellman alone, and you know, all those accomplished people that you're meeting in the classroom and outside are women who like you have overcome obstacles that you t- will be able to overcome too. So there's a kind of confidence as well as a sense of well-being, I think, that comes from being in an environment where people aren't focused on, you know, what makes you deficient in any way. They're focused on your empowerment.
0: Yeah. And, you know, human beings, I think we rise to the expectations that are placed on us. And when you're in an environment where it's expected that you're going to do certain things and certain things are going to happen for you. We do them, you know? And so when you're in an environment where it's kind of expected that you're going to, you know, be just average or okay, or you're kind of overlooked, then we conform to that expectation. And it's hard to, you know, consistently try and, you know, uh, break break that when that's, that's what's just like forced onto us every day or or what we're met with. So yeah, I think that's really cool and powerful. (music) you highly recommend parents to send black kids to those kind of institutions. The the other schools also need some minority students uh, at them as well or whatever. So I guess that's one of those hard questions for me where it's maybe better for the individual to go to.
1: Well, the good news is, yeah, the good news is that we live in a nation where there are lots of different kinds of colleges, right? You know, so there are HBCUs, but there are, um, Small liberal arts colleges that are diverse but majority white. There are large universities, there are, you know, community colleges, there are all kinds of colleges. And what is going to be right for any particular student is going to depend a lot on their academic preparation, their their interests, you know, their um readiness for certain kinds of experiences. So I would never say, you know, only look at HBCUs. I didn't go to an HBCU myself. Um, my parents were college educated. They went to Howard University. When I graduated from high school in the 70s, um, I had options to choose that they didn't have that weren't available mm. to them. I went to a majority white institution in New England and I had a good experience there. 20 years later, my son, one of my sons went to the same college, Wesleyan University in Connecticut. but. Um, Having been the leader of Spelman College for 13 years, I can say that it's an excellent choice, and if somebody wants that experience, there are a lot of great places they can go, and parents should actively consider them for sure.
0: Talk to me about achieving a positive sense of REC identity. And what does that sure. mean?
1: Well, REC stands for racial, ethnic, cultural identity. Um, if somebody read my um, 1997 version of my book, that phrase would have just said, you know a positive sense of racial identity. But uh, fast forward 20 years, um, researchers who study racial identity said, you know, in some cases, you know racial identity, it might be ethnic identity. You know, um, identifying not necessarily as a member of a particular racial group, but maybe an ethnic group. You know, Puerto Rican is an ethnic group. It's not a racial group Um, uh, or cultural identity that your sense of belonging to a group has everything to do perhaps with language and culture. And, you know, so thinking about that it's not just race, it's race, it's ethnicity, it's culture. So that's where we get that REC. So you don't have to always say racial, ethnic, cultural identity, but but having one, having a positive sense of identity that is not rooted in assumed superiority or assumed inferiority, is important to a good mental health and to be able to engage effectively with other people.
0: Okay, and see, this is important for everyone, including white people. And you talk about this also. Uh, actually, you have a whole chapter on the development of white identity in here. And so you talk about how we, we all must be able to em- embrace who we are in terms of racial and cultural heritage. And so there are many people for whom whiteness is still experienced as a source of shame rather than a source of pride. Um, so why is that and what do we do about it?
1: Well, if we think about the fact that if you grow up in a largely or maybe even entirely white neighborhood or community. If you're a young white person growing up in a very racially homogeneous community and you're around white people all the time and you might not even be talking or thinking much about the fact that you are white, you know, just goes unmentioned because everybody is, we don't talk about it, right? Maybe we talk about Religious differences, you know, he's a Methodist, you're a Baptist, she's a Catholic, you know, um, or maybe we talk about socioeconomic differences, you know, that person is from the wrong side of the tracks, but they're the same racial group as you, you know, so the, the kind of identities we pay attention to depends a lot on our environment. But for a lot of people, being white is not something they've thought much about because they've been in a largely white environment when they do think about it, or if it comes up, like right now in the midst of all of these protests and with the nation focused mm. on the history of racism and the unfair treatment of um, people of color, particularly African-Americans by the police, um, that conversation might lead some white people to start to think about, well, gosh, you know, I'm white, that these things don't happen to me. You know, what is the meaning of being white in the society? And some people might feel guilty or even embarrassed or ashamed because they don't want to be associated with the negative behaviors, right? But it's important to recognize that your life experience is shaped in part by your racial group membership. So you might not talk about it, but being white does shape where you live, where you go to school, where you work, what opportunities you might have. And so to ignore it is to not fully understand your own life experience. So being able to recognize that whiteness matters and that it's okay to acknowledge that and to feel, you, don't, you know, you don't have to feel shame about being white. Nobody needs to feel ashamed of being a particular group. That doesn't mean you like everything that's happened in the name of whiteness, but it does mean that you can acknowledge your racial group membership and still work for social change, still be in favor of social justice, still be someone who wants to be an ally. You know, when we talk about whiteness, we sometimes use the phrase white privilege, you know, and that phrase refers to the benefits that come from being white. I recently read a book where someone said, you know, my white male students in particular struggle with that phrase, white privilege. They don't feel privileged. And the author of that book, that author's name is Nolan Cabrera. And Dr. Cabrera said, I've been using the phrase white immunity. Hmm. as another way of describing it because it might not mean that being white gives you all these things but it protects you from bad things you know it protects you from being beat up by police officers you know it protects you from being viewed suspiciously when you walk in the store it protects you from you know inadequate health care if you have the resources so you know maybe that's another term to use white immunity
0: so, it's a lot harder to admit to ourselves the ways in which racism has benefited us because then we would have to admit to ourselves that we didn't earn everything that we yes. have as much as we feel like we did or yes. something. Yeah. It just like there's something complicated there that, uh, yeah, <laughs> makes it probably uh, a little bit more touchy or something. But yeah, so that's kind of, I like that term white immunity. That's cool. Um, I guess. Uh, So then a follow up to that on the positive sense of REC identity is like, uh, I don't know if there is there anything that parents uh, could do, especially parents of teenagers, but just any kind of with your family now, especially what's going on in the country to kind of help uh, just foster that positive REC identity or push your family in that direction.
1: I think it's really important to um, regardless of whether you identify as a person of color or um, as a white person to really embrace the history that has shaped our nation and by embrace it i mean not to necessarily say you like everything about it there's lots to not like about it but to especially learn about what it means to be i'm going to use the word resistor you know that if you are a person of color and you if you if your only knowledge of history is that You know, people like you were enslaved or, you know, paid low wages and used to build railroads and exploited in the process and, you know, interred in Japanese American internment. That's all you know. You're going to feel demoralized by that. But if you know that, yes, bad things happened, but these are the, you know, but people like Harriet Tubman and Ida B. Wells and, you know, Howard Thurman and, and Thurgood Marshall, you know, these were people who were speaking up and who I can whose contributions made a difference, and I can admire them and feel inspired by them. That gives me a sense of being part of a proud tradition. In the same way, white youth can feel empowered and inspired by the people who spoke up for justice. And there are white people throughout history who have. unfortunately, A lot of people don't know their names, don't know those stories. So we have to make that history visible. So it's not just about being oppressed or being an oppressor. It's about resisting oppression and resisting being an oppressor, being an ally, being an advocate for social justice.
0: Okay, so you point out something that I've definitely noticed is this problem when someone raises questions about racial practices or policies in an environment where white colorblindness is the norm, their response uh, is kind of like with that dad we talked about earlier, that kind of attitude, that the response is often one of hurt and defensiveness, as in, are you calling me a racist? Aversive racism, called aversive racism because the person is averse to acknowledging any links to prejudice or racism. So why does this happen and is there any good way to deal with it? Because I think, you know, we have to deal with it if we want to be able to have these difficult talks and lean into them.
1: You're exactly right. We have to be able to deal with it. And one of the things that I think we all have to acknowledge, and I try to convey this in my book, is that everyone is impacted by the racism in our environment. It's like smog in the air you know, and if you're in a smoggy place, everyone, it doesn't matter who you are, we're all going to breathe some of that smog in and be impacted by it. So if we're all breathing in some smog, it shouldn't surprise us if sometimes we breathe some out. So we have to be able to say to each other, I think some smog is showing, right? You know, I think we have to look at these issues and be able to talk about them. Otherwise, we can't fix it. And to stick to my smog analogy for just another minute, I would say, you know, if we think about there's, if there's pollution in the air, what do we want to do? We want to clean it up. And in order to clean it up, each of us has to take action. And each of us has to pay attention to whether we're contributing more pollutants or whether we're helping reduce the pollutants. We all want to be reducing the pollution, not adding to it. We have to be able to talk about it in order to make that happen.
0: I would uh, encourage it, anybody listening to uh, to do that. And hopefully this conversation will inspire other people to go out and talk more about it. Definitely people are talking about race right now, although, you know, maybe not for the best reasons. Hopefully, you know, people don't have to die to keep it going.
1: Well, I want to thank you for giving me this opportunity to have this conversation with you, Andy. So thank you.
0: Thank you for coming on the show, for sharing your immense experience and wisdom with us. It's been an honor and a privilege to to learn from you. So I can't wait to share it with our listeners. Thanks for listening to the Talking to Teens podcast. If you have any questions or just want to connect, you can always reach me by email, Andy at talkingtoteens.com. We'll see you next time.